Welcome back to Half the Battle. I'm your host, as always, Daniel Levy, and joining me now is the agent and CEO of Top Game Management and the head coach at the New England Cartel. I'm talking about Tyson Chartier. Tyson, welcome to Half the Battle. Hey, man. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. So obviously, for those that don't know, you're the head coach and manager or agent of uh, Calvin Cater, Rob Font, Mike Rodriguez, uh, among others. So it's an honor to have you on. So the first thing is... uh, What's your film study process like? Because obviously, you know, half the battle, this is a betting show. You know, we love to watch film on every single fight. And I noticed that you go in a lot of detail, man. So, like, what's your film study process like? What hours of the day are you watching film? And do you watch fighters' entire careers? Or is it kind of like their last five fights or what? Yeah, so, you know, I'm a nerd of the game. Like, I watch all the fights. Like, Saturday night there'll be fights. I watch from the prelims all the way through the main event. I do that with every card just to kind of – look for trends and stuff like that. But when it comes to one of my guys getting a fight, the first, you know, especially Rob and Calvin, like I'm their coach. I, I manage a lot of guys and I'll watch film if their coaches ask me to, but I don't try to step on toes. Um, but with Rob and Calvin, you know, I break down the video. So, you know, depending on who they're fighting, I'll go through and I watch every single fight, like anything that's out there, even if it's like grappling videos, you know, um, I'm watching that just to look for tendencies and see things that maybe um, they've done at the beginning of their career that they're carrying over to now. So you can see that, okay, there's definite patterns there. You look for, okay, how does this guy get hurt generally? How does he win generally? And then you start to see trends and you start to, uh, you know, like you said, like see tendencies that they have that maybe we can exploit. And then from there, it's like, it's a pretty in-depth process. You know, I, I go through, watch all the fights with no volume. And then um, I go through and I watch them again. And then I'll watch with volume after just because sometimes the announcers, you know, they do homework too. They'll give you some background. They'll, you know, they'll tell you, oh, this kid was a college wrestler or something. And maybe you can't find that on Google or, or you know, something like that. Or they'll say, you know, he's been training with this guy working on this and, and whatever. So, you know, you can pick up little tidbits in there. But I try to watch it first with no volume just so I don't get a little, you know, there's no bias. And I'm not looking for certain things that the announcers are pointing out. And, um, you know, and I look for tendencies that i'm seeing and then i'll go back and watch with the volume and then and then i go back and I, I just keep watching and looking for new things and uh you know it's amazing after you watch someone's career four or five times and then the sixth time through you might see something that you didn't see the first five times then you're like oh there it is um it's cool you know i call it those light bulb moments you know where you go through and you're like how the hell do you beat this kid and then and then all of a sudden you see it and you're like, there it is and then and then you see it come out on fight night when everything comes to plan it's it's uh you know it makes all the hard work you know, worth it. But so speaking of turning off the audio, because I know exactly what you're talking about. That way you're not swayed by anything. I kind of wish and tell me your opinion on this, that they had an option where you could just turn off the commentary because I still want to hear the shots being landed. You know what I mean? I want to know if they have that real impact. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, now that you're, you know, you're seeing no fans in the crowd, you're hearing it a lot more. I think I tweeted out this last week when I cornered William Knight, those elbows that he landed in the contender series against uh, Brundage's head. It's like it didn't come over on the camera, but like when you were there, you could just hear it. It's almost like a baseball bat hitting like a like a log or something. It was just like a thud, and you're like, "Damn, that has to hurt." And then obviously it did, and, you know, dropped him. But um, yeah, I mean, you can definitely. I think people are starting to really realize how violent the sport is now. Um, that you know, obviously it's a sport, but there's some violence to it. And then you you know, when you're hearing these shots uh, with no crowd, it's you know, like, oh geez, like that not used to hearing that you know it's uh definitely makes it more real yeah no no questions asked uh, about that so i mean do you set out certain hours of the day because like you just told us you're one of these guys that 
you watch an entire career and you'll watch it over and over. So, I mean, are there certain hours where it's like, hey, this is my film study time of the day? It's at, you know, I got three kids. I got a wife. Um, you know, so the kids are in bed by 730. And then, you know, during the day, you know, we're either training or I'm doing my, my daily stuff. You know, my phone's always going off with, you know, we got like 30 guys that I represent. So there's always something going on and, you know, trying to book fights, stuff like that. And then fortunately later in the day, I tend to have a little bit more uh, downtime where the kids are in bed and the phone's a little bit more quiet. And um, it's usually after that. And then, you know, I, I get into it though. Like, you know, it might start out at like nine o'clock and then next thing I know it's two in the morning and I'm still like, you know, you're all wired up you you know, you can't, can't turn it off. And then you're looking for things and it's, um, almost like a sick addiction really, but (laughs) (laughs) you know, two parts of a fighter's team that are often kept separate are coaching and managing. How do you kind of balance between being an agent and a coach? It's, you know, obviously it's a unique spot. I know some people mock the position. I know some of the guys that uh, are managers, they call them trainers and stuff like that. And there is <laughs> a lot of hacks. There's, yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of, uh, I, I think it gets a bad rap because there is a lot of coaches that try to hold on past their skill set. And I think there's a lot of managers that try to go past their skill set and coach. Um, I, I think the proof is in the pudding that, you know, if you look at me, Rob and Calvin, like obviously you know, Rob's nine or 10 right now and keeps switching and, and Calvin's six. And, uh, you know, we've had that in a few cards this year and, you know, and I've been with Calvin and Rob there, you know, Calvin's for five years and Rob his whole career since the first day he ever did an MMA practice. So, um, you know, being their coach, it's, uh, it's a lot of dedication and it takes a certain skill set, but then being their manager takes a whole different skill set and you try to blend the two. And I think with those two guys, we found synergy in it. And it, and it works. I'm not going to say it's super scalable because the amount of time that I have to put into breaking down videos and, and really handling them the way I wish someone would have handled me when I was fighting, um, it's not super scalable. You know, so it's it's almost that boxing camp style where it's like, okay, we have a little small group. We have a small circle. These are the people we trust. We're going to go all in and, and make it happen. Um, I don't think you could do that with if I was coaching 50 fighters, you know? Yeah. No doubt about it. So you and I had an interesting exchange on Twitter recently, and I don't like getting into back and forth on Twitter just because it's like one of those things where I'd rather you hear my tone, like see my facial expressions and like know where I'm coming from. Because I know on Twitter, if, if you never heard me talk before, it just might sound a certain way. So let's get yeah. this out the way. You uh, coached. Anthony Rocco Martin, Tony Martin, when he fought Neil Magny. And actually, uh, Tony did the camp here in Atlanta, Georgia, where I'm from. You know, he did it with Jukau, with the Lima brothers, with my good friend Cody Durden. So he was in very good hands. And when you watch a fight between Santiago Ponzinibbio and Neil Magny, firstly, Santiago actually made it look easy. He made it seem like, oh, it's all you got to do is calf kick him, you know, set up the right hand, stuff his takedowns, and it's going to be an easy night at the office, right? So after that devastating knockout, and honestly, before the knockout, it was a clinic by Santiago Ponzinibbio. So he fights Li Jingliang. And in the Li Jingliang fight, what I guess I noticed was that Li Jingliang got very, very tired almost like a minute and a half into the fight. Now, after that, he fought a bit uncharacteristic in terms of what I've seen in the past. He's, he's known for being a power puncher his entire career. He was actually going out there and offensively trying to wrestle against Magny, which I found kind of odd, but I kind of was like, you know what, maybe he's kind of gassed, and you know, maybe you know, the fight's outside of China, whatever the case may be, I gave him a pass. But I was like, you know what, because you know, I, I bet. But just so you know, there's no like bitterness when you lose. It's, it, 
this is like a long-term game. So individual results, I mean, it's about the long-term. But I was like, but you know what? Li Jingliang didn't throw a single kick. You know who's got a very good calf kick game? Tony Martin. So when I'm scouting the film on a fight like that, I'm thinking Tony Martin's going to chop him down with the calf kicks. And even though Tony Martin doesn't have the same volume as a guy like Neil Magny, I think he hits hard enough. I think that right hand is good enough to where he can kind of slow down the pace of uh, Magny. And if Magny tries to shoot, obviously, you know, Tony Martin, you know, firsthand is, uh, you know, his uh, guillotine series, his front headlock, his anaconda, his darts. I thought I thought it was going to be smooth sailing. So. And, and I'm sorry I'm talking so much. I got to preface this all the way. So back in Tony Martin's lightweight days, basically the criticism was that in the first round he looked like a world beater, but then he'd kind of gas out as the fights progressed. But it seemed like when he got to 170 pounds, he patched that up. We saw him get finishes in the third round. We saw him win decisions. We saw him do the whole bit. In the Neil Magny fight, that was the first time in a long time where I kind of saw him really get tired in a fight. Was that simply due to, you know, Neil Magny pushing that Denver elevation type pace? Was there, is there something we don't know about? Before we talk about, you know, Neil going south on all that stuff, why do you think that uh, Tony slowed down the second half of that fight? So when Tony went to Atlanta, so <clears throat> Tony used to train with here in Boston with us, and then he was in 55, he was cutting too much weight. And I kept bugging him to go up to 55, and he's like, no, 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 I'll be fine, I'll be fine. And his other coach, Brock Larson, um, who's been with his whole career, was like, no, I don't know, maybe he's got a good size advantage at 55. And then, so we went down to ATT, I was like, listen, just train with them down there, the women's 70s when you're not dieting, and see how you do. And he was like, dude, I'm doing really good. And then I talked to Mike Brown, who was his head coach while he's down there, and he's like, dude, he's a 170 pounder. And uh, so we kept him at 170, and he started doing really well. And um, you know, he was able to do he had more energy to do stuff because it wasn't about, you know, diet camp. It wasn't, it wasn't that it was a fight camp where he was able to, uh, you know, fill some holes. And so he started getting a lot of road work in, which is something he had never really had the energy to do in his career. Cause he was always dieting, you know? And, um, so when he's, since he'd been in Florida, then Atlanta, he was always doing a lot of road work. And then going into this fight, he tweaked his knee, um, during camp, which actually isn't even the same injury. He got the, uh, surgery, but, um, he tweaked his knee, they, you know, they, we had to check out by the PI and they're like, listen, just no more road work. So he came into this fight, not being able to do like a big part of his, uh, you know, cardio plan. And I know that's kind of like more of the boxing style, you know, you get your road work in, you can still get in shape after that. But the problem was it was during the pandemic and all the places that he had available to lift down in Atlanta weren't open. Yeah. So that, that was still at that time. So that's why we went out to Vegas early, uh, a week early and, you know, got some work done at the PI. So we were out there for two weeks before that fight. Um, just to get work on the knee. And um, so, you know, that was a little bit of concern going in. And obviously the way the fight panned out, he, he wasn't able to kind of keep his range as much as we would have liked. And, um, you know, it's easy to go in with the plan, but then when you're in there with a guy that has an 80 inch reach and you're in a 25 foot cage instead of a 30 foot cage or whatever it is, it's all of a sudden you, you see things and like, this isn't what I thought it would be. And, and um, you know, unfortunately, you know, Tony didn't, quite fight how he wanted to but you know the plan was you know we'll kind of get into it now the plan was you know he wanted to shoot on right away just to even up the striking to make it like okay i don't want to kick anymore i, I gotta keep my stance lower fight a little shorter because you know when you're worried about a takedown you're not gonna fight as long you're not gonna be up on your feet and be as long so um he was gonna take him down right away and then you know not struggle too much if he tried to scramble the gap and let him up just to kind of like show him what's up you know and then when he came out southpaw that threw him off a little bit and um so then when they had their first exchange, Tony went in for the clinch, and then he just felt like, oh, this, he's not that strong. You know, I, I can kind of just hold him here, chip away. That's kind of what Neil Magny does to people, you know? 
So he's like, all right, I'm safe. I'm winning right here. I don't have to deal with this range. Make him work to get off. Because at the end of the day, like, you're the one stuck in the bad spot. You should have to try to get away, you know? So we're, we're controlling the fight right there. Yeah, we're, it's not super sexy, you know? Um, but we're pushing him against the fence, and, you know, it's his job to get off. And I think in that first round, he had, uh, like, two minutes and 47 seconds of cage control. And then the strikes were pretty much even. I think the total strikes was like 20 to 14 and the significant strikes were 12 to 11. So like, we're pretty confident we win that round. So he's like, all right, I just won the round. Didn't take any damage. Don't have to deal with him being a long rangey self pie. I can just push him against the fence and, you know, maybe steal a couple takedowns and, and just, you know, I'll fine. I'll do the same thing in the second round. And second round he came out, he did get the takedown. I think he was on top of like 32 seconds. And then he had about a minute of cage control. And then aside from that, it was like, I think the total strikes was like 22 to 14, but the significant strikes were 14 to 11 again. So it was like very even. And like the optics of it is like, okay, Neil landed a couple of leg kicks, but Tony landed some good leg kicks too. And I think Tony landed probably the hardest shot, which is a big right hand that he had in the, uh, in the second round. So we're thinking like, all right, it's two nothing going into the third. And, but at this point now, Tony's fighting a style that he wasn't planning on fighting while not being able to do road work. And he got tired. And that's how what you saw in the third round was him just trying to survive thinking he was up 2-0. And, uh, you know, not take too much risk to get finished, but try to, like, go as much as you can. But anybody who's ever fought before, sometimes it's not your night for uh, having energy for 15 minutes and, you know, your cardio evades you. And at that point, you're just holding on to a thread. You're just trying to, like, finish the round, you know. And I think a lot of people have been there. It's unfortunate to be there, you know, in the in the fight like that where, uh, you know, then it sucks. You know, big moment, main card, big pay-per-view and last fight of his contract and, it was unfortunate the way it ended it, but you know, I think it was 15 of the 20 media people had Tony winning rounds one and two. And, but then two of those judges had us losing all three rounds, which was, I was pretty surprised. I think everybody there was surprised. You know, Neil Magdy went up to him right after the fight, like before the decision was ready. He's like, congratulations. And then after the decision was ready, he was like, dude, I didn't win that fight. So really? I was like, it is what it is. You know, like, there's nothing wrong with that. It's not Neil's fault. Like Neil's a beast. You know, you saw what he just did to Lawler. Like that's not on him. It's the judges and that's our fault, you know? But, um, it just, obviously I have a, I'm sensitive when it comes to Tony. Cause now here he is, loses the last fight of his contract. He's what five and two at 170 with his only losses being to Damian Maya and Neil Magny. And then now he's not sure if he's going to get a new contract. Then you have Neil Magny come over here and be a co-main event in his next fight, get a new contract and beat the shit out of Robbie Lawler. Now, who knows what Robbie Lawler that was? You know, maybe he'll come back his next fight and we'll know. But um, the fact of the matter is that they're former champion and he just dismantled them. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, so that's why when you when you sent out that tweet, like, why did Li, Li Jing Liang and Tony and, and uh, Robbie try to grapple him? It's like, I, I get what you're saying. Like, you're not wrong, but don't compare what I was just saying, and it wasn't like an argument on Twitter because I don't go back and forth with anybody either, is don't compare Tony's performance in a fight that most of the people think Tony won, including Neil. Maybe Neil goes back and watches it and thinks, okay, now I think I won. But at the time, you know, most of the people think Tony won, even the other fighter. And then, you know, Legion Lang did horrible. Robbie Lawler looked like dog crap. So I, that's all I was saying is like, let's not put it out in the universe that those fights are at all comparable because, you know, I think Tony, someone obviously is like, you know, one of my best friends and, you know, I love the kid, and so I just want to – I just wish – you know, this is frustrating that he doesn't already have a contract. And then you see them signing some of these new guys on the Contender Series or or these last-minute, you know, guys that probably Tony would walk through, and then they're getting in and, you know, getting contracts in the UFC. And then it's just unfortunate the whole way it's played out with Tony 
then needing to get knee surgery and then getting a staph infection from the knee surgery. And, you know, he's had an IV in his arm for six weeks with, you know, antibiotics going straight to his heart. And he finally got that out. But now he's still another month out before he can really train. And, you know, it stinks. You know, the kid's obviously he's a beast at 170. He's only lost to Maya. And uh, I thought he beat Neil Magny. You know, there's no shame in that. Obviously, it was at least close. And now here he is, like, injured from an injury he got in a fight that he thought he won. But the judges didn't give it to him. And now he doesn't even know if he's going to have a contract or a job. And it's just a tough place to be, you know. It's just, obviously, that's what the sport is. But so that was probably my uh, the ammunition behind why I replied to the tweet. Because for the most part, I really – I'm pretty inactive on Twitter. Now I'm trying to get a little, little busier. But for the most part, I don't get into pissing matches on Twitter. And um, even if I do say something, it's always – you know, I wasn't disrespectful or anything like that. I was like, hey, you know, it's never like name-calling, swearing, or, you know, insults or anything like that. So that was where I was coming from on that. Yeah, and I 100% feel your frustration. And just for everybody watching, I mean, everything he says is 100% factual in the sense that I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, and I can confirm that during that time period, the gyms were closed. So, you know, and man, that that, that just sucks because it's like, you know you got to get that road work in when you're fighting a guy, you know, that trains in that Denver elevation who's known for pushing that pace all three rounds. So I completely feel your frustration. I guess where I'm coming from is like this. And again, you know, who, who gives a shit that I lost a bet? That doesn't mean anything. That's not even what I'm trying. I'm not trying to place blame. Nothing. For me, it was more so I'm watching the tape on, on both them. And I'm like, yeah, we're going to go out. And I say we, you know, because I, I feel like I'm team Martin when I got, you know, bunch of money on him right so i feel like we're gonna go out there we're gonna calf kick this guy hit him with the right hand and then you know have an answer for his takedown attempts so the fight starts off and i haven't watched it since it happened live so maybe i need to go back and rewatch it but when it when it was when it was happening live i vividly remember neil magny going southpaw and at that moment i was like fuck because as you know firsthand tyson if you're trying to get off on a leg kick game plan i mean it's so much harder to kick a southpaw than as an orthodox fighter it's much easier to check as a southpaw and it was actually neil magny going out there kicking martin so did the southpaw surprise you and did magny coming out there leg kicking martin surprise you yeah no we knew neil had decent leg kicks <clears throat> um the southpaw did throw tony off a little bit and that's something maybe you know, I noticed that he did, in some of his fights he did come out southpaw, but I didn't think he'd because I really thought he was going to try to wrestle us, so I didn't think he'd come out southpaw. Um, and uh, you know, people usually like to shoot out of their their regular stance. So if he comes out southpaw, it might mess up his wrestling. But yeah, it was uh, it threw Tony off a little bit, and that's where I think you know you saw like I think it was like a minute into the fight, Tony finally went to the clinch, and then once you know he sees his range is so long, it's annoying in the small cage. You feel like there's always a hand in your face. And then you get in the clinch and you're like, wow, this kid can't get off the fence. Like, okay, I'll just hold him here and make him get off. You know, it's like, it's not the most exciting. It's not sexy, but you know, you're winning the position and you're making him work and you're not really burning a ton of energy. So you think, you know, and um, yeah, I think, you know, it'd be interesting if he came out righty and and Tony shot right away, how that would have gone down. But it's, uh, you know, coulda shoulda woulda right yeah no no doubt about it and you know i'm not trying to be mr after the fact or anything like that i mean i do kind of remember in round two that we got that takedown but it seemed to me like neil might have got the points back in the second half of the second round do you agree with that at all yeah it was like he i think it was just the optics of the leg kick whenever you landed a leg kick tony was kind of swinging his leg out so it looked like it was probably worse than it was tony was walking fine after um so there's no damage or anything i think it was just the you know even strikes and, and I think if you look at the judging on a hole that night, I think it was like the 
Giles versus Menafield fight earlier in the night. It was like, I think it was Menafield just kept pushing him against the fence, but wasn't doing anything. And then he lost a fight. So it was almost like, you know, it used to be like, oh, you push a guy against the fence and you win. But now they're trying to discourage that. So it's almost like it's the pendulum swung the other way and they're almost getting penalized for holding a guy against the fence because they're like, oh, you're stalling, which maybe you are, but you're winning the position. They have to get out. So it's, um, you know, it was an interesting night because I remember watching that earlier in the night and I'm like, wow, that guy, you know, he won the most of the positions. I'm obviously going off memory and I'm watching it while we're in the locker room moving up. But I'm like, okay, like they're kind of like penalized that kid for, you know, stalling a little bit, whereas he was winning the position, but he was kind of holding him, not doing much. It's almost like the judges are like, well, screw you. You're going to stall. We're going to give it to the other guy. And I think, um, you know, maybe there was a little bit of that in our fight. But, yeah, it's tough. Like, you know, we got the takedown. We didn't do much with it, but we were on top of half a minute. We still had, like, another minute of cage control. He didn't really control us in anything, and then the significant strikes were equal. So it's like, all right, well, if the significant strikes are equal, we're controlling the cage. We got more top control and cage control. It's like, I don't know how we lose that round, but it is what it is. You know, it's, it's obviously crying over spilt milk at this point, but yeah, water under the bridge. So I guess the last thing we'll say about this uh, topic to, to address my tweet, which basically my tweet was saying, how come Li Liang, Tony Martin and Robbie uh, Lawler uh, tried to offensively grapple versus Neil. Now you, you basically explain what happened in the, in the Tony Martin fight, you know, you know, Neil kind of threw us off a little bit going southpaw, this and that. But and I do agree with you 100 percent. The Tony Martin fight was way closer than the Robbie and the Li Jing Liang fight. So there's no disagreement there. I guess the reason I put that tweet out was because despite it being closer, he was still trying to offensively wrestle, which I kind of thought was gassing Tony out. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it did lead to ultimately his demise in the third round. But I think he was leaning on the fact that all right, I just won the first round. I just pushed him against the cage and he didn't try to get off. And, you know, so he was there for, I think it was total like two minutes, 45 seconds of him just being held against the cage. You know, Tony could have been maybe a little busier with, you know, maybe stomping feet and knees and, you know, token strikes. But, um, yeah, I think it's, it did ultimately lead to him probably gassing out. But I think when you feel like you're winning and you hold someone somewhere in a dominant position and, and they don't, you don't feel like they can really get out and you don't, you know, feel like, uh, you know, you're losing the fight. It's kind of like, all right, look, we need to win. You know, it's like half your money's on the line, you know, a new contract. Like there's a lot of pressure that comes with that. And um, yeah, I mean, and plus I think the thing that people don't talk about is like when you get in there with someone as long as Neil Magny, especially in the smaller cage, you just feel like they're, it's annoying. Yeah. You know, it's hard to really, really prepare for that. But um, obviously, you know, Neil's a top 10 guy for a reason. Um, and at the end of the day, like, all, I just think Tony Martin showed that he's also up there with that caliber of a fighter. You know, he arguably beat Neil Magny, who just dismantled Robbie Lawler. Um, you know, I think he's easily talent-wise. You know, he doesn't have the number next to his name, but talent-wise, he's up there with the top fifteen guys, so he can compete. So, I just think it's a no-brainer for the UFC to resign him. Yeah. Now I know you're not associated with Robbie Lawler, but you know, going into the fight, I'm thinking to myself, well, Robbie's not going to try to wrestle him. So the fight starts out. He throws a nice punch to the body. I'm thinking, nice, Robbie, and then immediately he shoots. Is it just a case where, like, this dude is, like, almost 6'4", he's got the 80-inch reach? Does it, like, mess with people to where they don't feel as confident in their stand-up ability? That's why they're shooting? 
it's tough because if you go and look at some of his losses, like he gets manhandled, like easy takedowns, manhandled from like, you know, you see what RDA did to him and, um, you know, some of these other guys, it was a, uh, Larkin. I'm just, yeah. Like, well, Larkin did more of the elbows in the clinch. Right. But I don't know, but I'm, I know the RDA, like RDA took him down fairly easily. It looked like he was a black belt rolling with a white belt in that fight. Obviously, Neil kind of laid an egg and RDA is a beast. So you look at that and you're like, all right, an easy path to victory. is like this guy doesn't have wrestling. He's just kind of a long-range jiu-jitsu guy, you know, a slick guard, good triangle, something like that. So if you can get on top, wear him out a little bit, rest, um, you know, but I don't know. It's, uh, you know, kind of what Johnny Hendricks did, you know. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I think once you see that, once you're in there, and you know, you see that long, that long range and it's super annoying. You're just like, screw this. I'm just going to take him down. Got you. Yeah. So anyways, about Tony Martin, about them being reluctant to re-sign him. Um, I'm not sure what you can reveal on the situation, but my memory kind of flashes that this is not a new thing. Actually, from what I remember, I heard an interview with Tony Martin before the LaFleur fight. And he said something about how either, I think Sean might've told him like, you and LaFleur are the two most boring fighters in the division. I don't know if he was joking or if that really happened, but I, I, I seem to kind of remember Tony Martin saying something about that. So that leads me to believe that there's like a some kind of history there. Can you, can you tell us yeah, a little no, bit? No, I just think Tony was, you know, Tony's got a small circle. He's had, uh, you know, he always feels like everybody's out to get him sometimes. Like, you know, he's, you know, if it, he just assumes the worst sometimes. And I think early in his career, he just felt like maybe Sean didn't like him because he was getting like shorter notice fights. He's having to cut all his weight. And, you know, when you're, you're dieting, you're bitchy. And then you feel, you know, the, you just keep stacking those chips. And he always just felt like, man, why can't I just get like a full camp? Like, and have time to die. He felt like he was always crash dieting and stuff like that. And I think a lot of the, it was the weight cut stuff led to the perception that maybe Sean doesn't like me. And, you know, but he's really over the last like couple of years, he's really done, tried to do a lot since he's moved up to 170 to mend that relationship. And he takes ownership of that. I know him and, um, you know, he's tried to express that to Sean a couple of times. And, um, you know, I think the relationship is better. Uh, like, it's, it's tough, you know, Tony's, you know, young kid, chip on his shoulder. He wants to kill the world. And, and, um, you know, so he's probably said some things in the past that he wishes he could take back, but you know, he's, he's growing up, he's got a kid now, he's got a daughter and, uh, he's trying to be more mature and be more, you know, I guess, respectful of his, you know, his employers and, and, you know, say the right things. And, and I think he's shown that his, maybe he hasn't always said the right things to be a company man, but his actions have always showed it. Like he's been willing, you know, he's pretty much never said no to a fight. He's flown out of the country to fight the local guys. He's you know, taking shortage notice fights with crash dieting when he's at 55 and, 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 you know, he wants to be exciting. It's, you know, he's, a, he's a beast of a grappler and you see all these fights where he tries to keep it standing. Cause he, you know, he thinks, well, the UFC will like me more if I, if I get out there and bang, you know, and, um, you know, he saw he knocked out Ryan LaFlair and he was doing, you know, good with some other guy, you know, he picked apart Bryce with the leg kicks and, um, Peter Russian in Russia. Yeah, he fought a Russia, a Russian in Russia, and you know, beat the hell out of his leg. And you know, he probably could have taken down that kid and submitted him. You know, but he's like, that's not what they want. Like, you look at the Johnny Case fight; he took him down with like what thirty seconds left in the third round, and already had him in a kimura. Probably would have torn his arm off, but the time ran out. Um, he probably could have done that in the first round, but he's like, well, the UFC wants me to. They don't want me to be born. They want me to be exciting. So I think it's a little bit of like overthinking. Yeah. I think if you just go out there, you could probably do, you know. Um, what he did to Fabricio Camos to a lot of the guys, you know, just take you down and kill you. He's that type of grappler. But, um, 
yeah, I just think, you know, he's, he's done a lot of growing up with the last few years. And, and I think he knows that, um, you know, he's probably said some things in the past that he's, you know, he's already apologized for. And, you know, he, he just wants a clean slate. He wants to show like, yeah, I can compete with these top 15 guys. And I think he's shown that he's just fallen just a little short each time, you know, Damian Maya's tough, tough guy to be exciting against. And, and he hung with him. And then, um, you know, Neil Magny's a, you know, he's a perennially top 15 guy and um, arguably beat him. So, I, you know, I think he's just, you know, he's at a time where he just feels like, all right, I, I got to do it now. You know, I got to make this next run. And, um, but, you know, obviously he needs a contract to do that. So, yeah, it's tough. Tough spot to be in. I hope uh, everything works out in that in that regard because, man, he's a very talented guy, so hope the best for, for him for sure. So, man, we got to talk about your star, Calvin Cater. So I was telling you off air, man, uh, first time I saw him fight, I mean, that step through right hand against Andre Feely, I was like, oh, so this guy's a top five guy right now. Okay. So what was the first time you saw Calvin Cater and you were like, oh, okay, he's the real deal? Well, we always knew it. Like when he, you know, he'd fought locally he was always the top 45 in the northeast and i was already coaching rob font and he was the now the number 245 in the northeast and they always wanted those guys to fight and i met calvin in 2011 on the set of here comes the boom and i'd always seen a bunch of his fights anyway and then when they wanted to put that fight together i'm like no it doesn't make sense like you guys don't need to knock each other out locally i was like wait until you know go to the ufc if you ever fight him it'll be in the ufc realistically you should be training together and that was when rob was still at 45 and then rob went to the ufc dropped down to 35 and then fast forward a few years 2016 or 15 calvin reached out and he's like he had had a three year two and a half year layoff at that point and um you know he's healing some injuries and he's doing some other business stuff and then he called me he's like hey listen i want to i want to make another run like uh, you know i feel like if i don't get to the ufc i'm gonna regret it and um so we put together a plan. I said, all right, come and start training with us. And I started managing him. And then we got him two local fights, got him to the UFC. And it was uh, it was funny because when he first got that Andre Philly fight, he hadn't trained for like maybe a month or two. He'd been out in Vegas for Rob's fight, partying. He was in no condition to take a fight. And I remember some people being like, oh, well, hopefully he can just put on a good show and be respectful and then look forward to the next one. And I'm like, bro. Like Calvin Cater on nine days notice, not having trained for a month is a competitive fight with Andre Philly. Calvin Cater in camp will destroy Andre Philly. And that's no shame on Andre Philly. Like Andre Philly is really good, but Calvin's just that much better. Like he's, you know, Calvin's a guy that can win a title. Andre Philly's a guy that, you know, can beat a lot of great guys, but I don't know that he ever wins a title. Um, I think there's just levels to it. And I think, you know, Andre's a beast, but I just know what Calvin's capable of and that's no, no shame on Andre. It's just, it's me talking about how good Calvin really is. And so we knew that back in 2015 before he went there. And, um, it was just a matter of cleaning up some things. And, you know, I think he had gone on like eight fights in a row. He hadn't finished anyone. And, um, so once he did his first, first UFC fight, we were at another gym. And then that's when we all broke off me, Rob and Calvin. And we, you know, we started the cartel and, um, it was, I brought in some other striking coaches to, to work with him on his footwork. Cause if you look at the Andre Philly fight, he was like landing some really clean shots, but his feet were never underneath them. And, um, so we started work, you know, working with a, uh, a different, uh, striking coach, Gregor Bello, another heavyweight that I manage. And, he, you know, he's really good. He's worked with a lot of great coaches and he's got a good coaching style himself. And, um, I just told Greg, I was like, listen, like he's landing clean shots and then nobody's falling down. Like we gotta, we gotta figure this out. And, um, so Greg just started working with him on like, 
know, different combinations to bring his feet with him. And then the next fight to that whole camp, we worked with him. And then the next fight was the Shane Burgos fight. And you can even hear Greg call it out. He's like, all right, do it again, but bring your feet with you. And that's when he knocked out Burgos. And um, so, yeah, so it's just a matter of tweaking some things and, you know, kind of uh, fixing some small holes that he had. You know, obviously he was already really good, but, you know, we're still trying to make him better. Yeah, no doubt about it. And Calvin's what I like to consider a main event fighter. Uh, his style is made, tailor-made for five rounds. So how do you kind of get this quote-unquote slow starts under control? It's something we've been working on, you know, and um, even the last fight, the plan was to come out a little harder than we did. And I think if you look back at the Ige fight, the first 90 seconds, I don't think we really threw a punch. And then I think we probably lost the first round. I think if you look at the scorecards, we lost the first round against uh, Jeremy, uh, Jeremy Stevens. So no, it's just something that, you know, we're constantly on this like vision quest. We're trying to get better and we're trying to figure out like, all right, how do we fix this? How do we fix that? You know, I would say we're rowing a boat and there's a bunch of holes in it. We're just trying to plug them, plug all the old holes and plug the new ones as they come. And, um, you know, and at the same time, make bigger oars so we can swim faster. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's tough, you know, and you, you know, you're never going to be perfect, but that's what we're, uh, we're trying to do. And our team motto is to figure out how to learn off your wins. You know, everybody always says you win or you learn, but it's like, no, you got to win and learn. Yeah. And um, if you just sit, you know, rest on your laurels after a win and think you don't have to change anything, you're wrong. Because you can go back and look at wins and see all the things you did wrong. And I think the Ige fight, Calvin, you know, he ranked himself a B minus. He said you probably deserve a lower score than that. Um, I don't disagree with him. You know, he obviously he's kind of walked through Ige, but he, it still doesn't mean there's a lot of things that he did wrong and that, you know, we got away with that I, I think we can fix for the future. So him giving himself a B minus, I'm sure as a coach, that's actually music to your ears because that means like, hey, I want to get better. I want to improve. If he came out and was like A plus, would you have like a different conversation with him? No, I would just tell him, you know, it would just be like, no, Calvin, like explain it. You know, he's pretty reasonable. So I don't imagine ever having that conversation. He's his toughest critic. So, um, but yeah, if he came out and thought he was perfect, he's like, no, no, you're never perfect. There's always things you could do wrong, you know, uh, do better. But, um, yeah, no, he had the right mindset coming out. It is music to your ears as a coach. When you have the fighter being hard on himself, it means they want to get better. And he's uh, self-driven. And um, those are the kind of fighters that, you know, it's a dream to work with. You know, I always say, like, you need three things in fighters. You need them to have, like, the talent, the drive, and then the discipline. And he has all three. Like, I don't have to beg him to show up at the gym. If anything, I'm, I'm trying to beg him to slow down because sometimes you can overtrain, you know. But that's a good problem to have. And, uh you know, he's got a good home life. He's super disciplined. He's all in on this. He's not, he's not out here trying to work side jobs or anything like that. He, like, this is, this is what he does, you know? And, um, and then obviously he's got his talent is through the roof and he's, I feel like we're still just scratching the surface on what he's capable of. So he's, um, yeah, this guy's the limit with him, man. I, I really truly believe one day that he will have that built around his waist. If you had to mention a weakness for cater, like, it's, it's really tough to do, but if you had to mention one, it'd be leg kicks. So is that just simply a case where he kind of sacrifices the leg kicks to get off on that boxing? Because you know, traditionally speaking, boxers are kind of heavy on that lead leg. Yeah, I think you could say that watching the Moicano fight. But then if you really go back and watch his last two fights, he's checked most of the leg kicks. I think I think Zabi, he checked almost all the kicks against Stevens. I know the announcers are making a big deal of it, but... Me and his Muay Thai coach were very happy with how he handled the leg kicks. It's like, make them miss or make them pay. And he was checking some of those kicks. And then if you look at Calvin's offensive leg kicks, you know, all the focus that we've had on the defense, he's also focused on offense. He's starting to land a lot of leg kicks. I think he was, 
was it eight for eight on leg kicks against the beat. And then, you know, he landed a couple against uh, Stevens. And then I know he didn't land too many against Ige, but he did land some, you know, and uh, so, yeah, it's tough. I, I think that's one thing you say, slow starter and he, he struggled with leg kicks, but I think that's a hole that we've mostly filled. And, um, you know, you look at that last fight, I always say like, you know, there's three things you can do with leg kicks. You can make them miss, you can make them pay, or you can take them down, right? And Calvin made people miss. He's checked them, made them pay. And then on Ige, you got a nice takedown off a of kick. So now if I'm looking at it as a coach and I know that a guy is going to check a lot of, catch a lot of kicks and take you down off it, I'm like, hey, we got to be careful with our kicks, you know, because they might take you down. So I think he's, he did some things in that Ige fight that are going to deter people from throwing as many leg kicks in the future. That's good. So speaking of the Ige fight, Ige is an interesting cat because like he always comes out hard that first round. Now I need your coach's analysis. Does Ige like get a second win in that third round? Because it seems like a lot of these fights, he loses the second round. And I'm not sure if it's him taking the round off, if he's tired from all his activity in the first round. What what was your assessment while watching film? Yeah, no, it seems like he takes his foot off the gas pedal a little bit in the second round. I don't think that's a conscious thing that he does. I don't think he's meaning to do it. Um, he's got a good coach in Eric, and he's from a good gym. Um, I just think he, you know, I think he kind of just wills his way through the first round, and then the second round, I don't know if it's just bad luck, but it seems like he almost, like, loses a position then kind of accepts it, and then ends up just kind of losing the round a little bit. And then the third round comes back and, like, like guts out the the scrambles. Like, if you look at the Bectic fight and the – um, the other one, the Barbosa fight. Um, you know, he kind of like there's a couple scrambles towards the end, and he like willed getting on top, and and you know squeaked out the third round. So I don't, yeah, I don't think it's anything that's like he's doing wrong. I just think, yeah, I don't know. It's very odd because he does kill people in the first round, and then the second round he comes out with loses, <laughs> and the third round he comes out all, all motivated again. So I just think it's been something that's been an anomaly that's happened throughout his career that, um. You know, because if you look at our fight, it was opposite. Right. You know, we won the first round, and then I think uh, some people think he won the second round. And then, you know, third third round was pretty even, and then, you know, fourth and fifth, we took over. But, um, yeah, that was our plan. We wanted to come out, and, we, you know, we wanted to take that first round from him. It was like, listen, like, he knows he's a fast starter. It's five rounds. Take the first round. He knows he's a little slower in the second. Like, let's set that way on him. And then – let him try to beat us in the second round. And then we beat him in the second round. And then, then he goes, okay, crap. I need to win all three rounds to win the fight because I don't think there's any way Ige's going to finish us. Um, I just think our skill set with his, you know, Calvin hasn't shown that he's got a weak chin or anything. I would. Um, so, I, you know, I just think he'd have to steal some rounds to beat us. So Calvin Cater versus Max Holloway next. I've seen you lobbying for it. So we won, man. It's, um, you know, all these other guys, you know, He's the go to the division. You know, he's earned the right to make his calls. Um, but who knows how the other five are going to shape up. A lot of these guys are just lobbying for title fights without actually fighting. So um, if he's available, we're available. It makes sense. You know, we're the hottest prospect in the division. We just took out the next hottest prospect, the guy who's on a six-fight win streak. And, um, you know, we've shown we're willing to fight backwards and earn a spot. You know, we're, we got two wins this year. we got most wins in the top ten since 2019. And we have the most knockouts in the division since we entered the uh, entered the UFC. So I think you could argue that we've earned it. And, um, you know, what we did to Stevens and then, you know, just taking out the hot prospect uh, in a five-round fight showed that we're, you know, we're a headliner. You know, we can fight in those fourth and fifth rounds and do really well. And, um, you know, there'd be no better honor for 
us and to attach ourselves against, you know, the go to the division. And um, obviously that's going to fall into his court. You know, if the timing's not right, that's why we're saying, hey, listen, you, the ultimate fighter's coming. You know, we'll go and be a coach on the ultimate fighter and then we can fight you, you know, whenever that's done filming and, you know, airs and we'll fight you at the end of that. So um, it'd be good. You know, I think a lot of fans would jump on that too because I think Calvin, people are a lot of like, there's a lot of hype behind him and there's a lot of like people thinking like, oh, maybe he's the guy. And uh, there's no way to better to prove that we're the guy than beat the guy. Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, if you look at the rankings, literally that's the only guy ahead of Calvin right now besides the champ that's not booked. So literally it would be a situation where – if you had to fight backwards, it would be Josh Emmett. That's the closest guy to your. He's got an ACL tear, so he's out. For so a he's while. out the picture. So so besides, so it's really Max Holloway or the champ. Yeah, and then unless unless the beat squeaks in and gets that end of October fight against Alex, if Alex wants those pay per view money um, to fight on the, the the Khabib card, then it would leave Yair. But I think we've earned the right to leapfrog Yair. I mean, look what he did to Stevens. He just pulled out against the beat. We've got two wins since he last fought. I think uh, we've earned the right to fight Max before he does. I mean, I don't even know why he's ranked above us when he squeaked by Jeremy Stevens. All he did was one body kick and then some ground pound and then lost the third round. Um, you know, and then you look what we did to Stevens. And then we went out and beat Ige and, and he's just sitting idle. So we have the momentum, not him. I think we should be sitting at five. We should get to fight Max before he does. And um, unless he still fights the beat. But either way, I think... It makes sense, you know, if you're just looking at it logically on paper, you know, Calvin versus Max is the fight to make. I mean, when you talk about a fight like Calvin Cater versus Max Holloway, you know, in normal terms, uh, Holloway is actually usually the taller guy. But this would be the first time in a while where, I mean, he fights someone the same height as him. How do you think that would play into Calvin's hands? No, Calvin's, you know, Calvin's got a longer reach. I think Max is only like a 69-inch reach. Right. Um, you know, Calvin's, I think, 72. So we get a, a little bit of reach advantage. Um, but Max is just so smart, you know. That it's it's going to be a chess match. You know, I think we have a significant power advantage. I would argue we're the better wrestler. You know, Calvin is a great wrestler. People just don't see it. Um, Jiu-Jitsu, who knows, you know. Um, but I don't think that really factors in because I don't think Max will be able to take us down. So um, Max just extremely smart, comes from a good camp, and – he fights very disciplined when he comes with, this is how I'm going to fight. He sticks to it and doesn't deviate. Um, and he's got really, really good volume. He just has a way of like taking rounds with volume, not really hurting you, but then he's in volume. And then, um, but Calvin's got a significant power advantage. So it's like, you know, we, it'd be a good fight, man. It's a clash of styles for sure. You know, you got two, two really smart fighters. You got the, uh, you know, I think we're even older than Max, but you say the young prospect who's older, but right. you know, the new prospect, the new kid on the block, it's got a lot of momentum. And then Max coming off two, two losses, one, one being controversial, but before that, you know, a big, you know, bunch of title defenses. And I know he had the, you know, the, the Dustin loss, but you know, he's been the king of the division for a long time. And um, I think there's new blood here and it's time for him to test himself against it. I also got to know, how do you think Calvin matches up against the current champ, Alex? Because, like, I have i don't think I've ever seen uh, Calvin in there with a five foot six guy. I guess the closest would be maybe Fishgold or Ige. Uh, how do you think they match up? Yeah, I think it's, you know, that guy's obviously a beast. He's a champ for a reason. And um, I said, like, Calvin can beat all those guys. Like, there's, there's really not a bad matchup for Calvin in the top ten. It's just a matter of us getting to book the fights, you know. He let one slip away with the beat. Um, 
But I don't think anybody looks at that fight and thinks like, oh, Calvin is outclassed. You look at what Zabit's done to everybody else he's fought. He's put him in like dominant positions, almost finished the fight, beat him up, frustrated him. Like there was none of that in our fight. It was just, once again, Calvin started a little bit slow. But then once Calvin started getting going, it was like, okay, like he's putting it to him. So I think, um, you know, everybody talks about Zabit being the next big thing and this and that. I, I, I think we stole some of that luster that he had. I think people now have more questions than answers about Zabit. I don't think people are looking at him as like, oh, he's the next guy. I think they're like, oh, is he the next guy? Like, how would he do in five rounds? I think we, you know, I think we poked a lot of holes in um, in that theory. And uh, I think now it's still to be tested. So it'll be, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see how he does in a five round fight. But uh I think Calvin matches up against them all good. You know, he goes against Alex. Alex is shorter guy. You see, you know, we've done really well against short guys. You look what we did to Fish Gold. We look what we did to Ige. Um, you know, Calvin matched up really good against those guys. So the Jeremy Stevens performance, I don't know why, but initially, like when I watched it live, I thought Calvin got off to a really slow start, you know, watching it live. But when I rewatched it while handicapping the Calvin versus Ige fight, I actually thought Calvin played that first round really smart versus Stevens when I rewatched it. Like I was like really, really impressed on my second glance. Uh, what's your opinion, Coach? Yeah, I mean, it would have been nice if we had a little bit more volume, you know, because then I think we could have stolen around because I think we landed the bigger shots. Um, you know, Calvin was downloading a little bit, moving backwards. Um, I think we would have held our ground a little bit more. I think we could have uh, taken the round. But, um, you know, Calvin's very cerebral. He's looking for openings. He's seeing. He's, he's getting your time. He's getting your range. And then, and then he starts to see tendencies, and um, you know that that came out in the second round when he saw him reaching, and then he just came in with the elbow. So, a lot of people might not know this, but you actually uh, manage uh, William Knight as well, who you know fought on Contender Series twice. And I remember the first time I saw him, you know, on that first Contender Series appearance. You know, I, we can sit here, we can talk about his power, we can talk about his physique, we can talk about all that stuff. But that's not what stood out to me, Tyson. What stood out to me is this guy's heart, his will to win, his determination. I mean, he's got the resolve of someone that wants to be a champion. So, I mean, what's the ceiling on this kid? Ceiling's high, man. It's um, I kind of compare him to like a Derek Lewis, you know, where you, you see him do some things that are wrong. You're like, why are you doing that? But then he like muscles out of it, gets back up and knocks you out. Um, the thing that people don't even understand is he was like a runner-up wrestler in connecticut like a state or state runner up and he's uh he's got a good wrestling background and he's um obviously he's still newish to the sport he's still learning he's still cutting his teeth but um he you know you look at a lot of his fights he's getting in some really bad positions against some really high level guys and finds a way out and goes and i think that you know he's got a really you know unique background where he you know he got bullied a lot and you know he's you know, raised by his grandmother. So, you know, he's just got a, an interesting story that led to all that mental toughness that he has. And, um, you know, there's definitely no quitting him. It's when you're, when you're cornering him, it can be frustrating because you're like, no, don't do that. Like get up, you know, but, um, yeah, man, he's just, it's, you can't teach what he has, which is heart and just the physical attributes that he, that he has. And, um, and I know he gets a little bit frustrated when people say that because he's like, listen, I also work for this. Right. And uh, I'm like, yeah, you're in the gym all day. You're a beast, you know. But, um, you know, I don't think there's any questioning the fact that he's got, you know, really good. Uh, he doesn't like when you say I got good genetics. He's like, no, I work for this. But, you know, he's obviously his, he's a specimen, man. He's, just, you know, 
I don't want him to bear hug me. <laughs> but, you know, he's going to really, really nice kid. It's enjoyable being on fight weeks with him. And yeah, I'm excited to see him. I think he's got that really good fight. Um, Alexa Kamur, you know, I think that's a really good test. 6-0 and versus 8-1. and And, you know, really, it's uh, it'd be interesting to see, you know, what Alexa tries to do. Because, uh, you know, William hasn't really been able to show his stand-up. But uh, he's got really good stand-up. And obviously got great wrestling. And he's just got power. Yeah, for those that uh, heard, he's taking on William Nice, taking on Alexa Kamor, who's actually uh, like I think Steve Miocic is like protege or something among those lines. Correct? Yeah, he's one of his training partners. So, um, but we joke around. It's like, well, last fight we 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 knocked a kid out that was cornered by Anthony Smith. The fight before that, we knocked a kid out that was cornered by uh, King Mo. Right. So it's like, well, <laughs> who's gonna maybe Steve will come with him this time and he get another <laughs> knockout? So. That's funny. So another one of your guys, he's actually fighting this weekend, Mike Rodriguez. Slow Mike, they like to call him. So th- this is an interesting case, and I'm very curious to hear uh, your insight on this. So if I had to create, like, if we have a video game and I had to create a specimen at 205, 6'4", the 80-inch reach. I mean, when you talk about this guy's offensive Muay Thai techniques, the hand fighting, the parrying, uh, his counters, like, his, Muay Thai is beautiful. The thing I've noticed is historically speaking when fights go past the first round i'm not sure if it kind of falls apart or what the deal is but i see the talent i recognize that this guy has got all this potential what do you think the deal is uh coach like for him to really put it all together and go out there maybe win a decision sometime yeah i think it's it's just been a kind of a weird thing with all his fights like um you know that sacramento fight it was a I think that was our second opponent switch. So he took a new opponent like a week out. You know, he's still, you know, he just, just got overwhelmed in that fight. But he said, you know, he's dealing with stuff outside the ring that was just messing him up. And I think he went in there with not so much a clear head. And then, you know, you look at the uh, the, the Busan fight, he just got caught. I mean, right, right here, four of his teeth were smashed in. They broke his, you know, because there's nothing you do. He's, when you get caught at 205 or heavyweight, you get caught with a clean punch, it happens. Um and then, you know, the first fight, I guess I think it was Giles, right? When he fought Giles and he kind of gassed out is, uh, you know, at the time that was like a nightmare matchup for him, like a pressure wrestler, you know, at the time Mike's wrestling wasn't as good as it was now. I think you look at his last fight, he was really digging underhooks real quick, getting off the fence, wasn't playing that game. And, um, but the hole he had when, when he fought, you know, Giles in Brooklyn is he had a different strength and conditioning coach. And now he's at skill strength with Mike Perry and um, he's filled that hole. Like, he's filled out. He's a bigger 205 now. You know, he's actually cutting weight, whereas the John Allen fight and the Busan fight, he, he wasn't even cutting weight. He was, like, walking in there on weight. Um, you know, now he's going into fight week at, like, 225. And, you know, he's an actual, legitimately, you know, correctly sized heavyweight. You know, he put a lot of muscle on him, and he, he worked really hard with Mike Perry to do that. And he's confident that he can go three hard rounds now, whereas before it was, like, I'll help it on gas out. You know, you get right. that big scary monster on your on your shoulder that you're like worried about. So we, I think we filled that hole with the cardio questions. And since then, it was, uh, you know, the John Allen fight. He just got behind early. Got you know, he doesn't remember a lot of the fight. You know, he kind of got rocked early, and then just just kind of going on autopilot. And then the the last fight in Busan, he got caught early, and then this fight, he caught the other kid early. So um, I'm excited to see him go a th- three hard rounds. I think Ed Herman's the type of guy that. You know, he's going to stay there. He's going to be in your face, and he's a tough, you know, tough veteran. And um, I think this is the a good time for a test like this for Mike. So if it does go past the first round, I think you're going to see, like, a Mike that's still breathing good, you know? Yeah. 
I'm really happy to hear that. So I got to know, um, have you ever bet on your guys? And before you answer this question, I always have to preface this question by saying it's completely legal to bet on your guys. It would only be illegal if you bet against your guys because then it would be like some fucking like, yo, like what, what's going on here? Is it a fixed fight? But if you bet on your guys, you're in Vegas, completely 100% legal. So have you ever bet on your guys before? The only time I've done it is Rob Font's UFC debut when he fought George Roop, and he was like, he was a plus 180 underdog. So I think I bet like $300 on him, and I think nice. I won like 540 or something like that. So that's the only time, but I don't really, I'm not really a gambler. I don't really bet a lot. Um, but, you know, there's some times where you're like, all right, we're a big underdog in this fight, and we should be a favorite. So might as well a couple bucks on there. But I generally don't even go to the sports book, but. Yeah, that was the only time I did was that, that first time we were in Mandalay Bay and I threw down 300 on him and he won. So that was nice. So Randy Costa, he, he's one of your guys too, correct? No, he's a training partner. So he technically is managed by Joe Lozon, but now he's and he's one of Joe Lozon's students, but he's training at uh, ATT now. Yeah, once the pandemic hit, his parents had a house down there, I guess. So he went and hid down in Florida to get away from the, uh, the germs, I guess. And um, he's been training down there and now he fights next weekend. And um, I think some of the guys from ATT are cornering. I think one of the guys from ATT and then maybe Joe is still cornering them as well. And I think maybe Gregor Bello too. Okay. Okay. I thought he was one of your guys. Yeah. I saw his debut here in Atlanta. Uh, man, he's an exciting kid. For someone that's had less than 10 pro fights, I'm like, yeah, just give this guy a little seasoning and experience. And he's going to put on a lot of shows for the fans. Yeah. He's got an exciting style. Like he's like very unorthodox to the point where I think in that fight, Joe Rogan thought he was injured because he was like kicking weird, but he's just got a very unique style. He'll kick you from anywhere. And uh, he's, uh, yeah, this guy's living. He's still young. And I'm excited to see how he performs next week after being at ATT for a while. So a lot of people don't know this. Uh, you were actually a pro fighter at one point. You even had a winning record. Was it a natural transition into the management side of things? See, yeah, so I, you know, my pro record sucked. I think I went like seven and one amateur and four and three pro, but I was winning record. a desk job. Yeah, <laughs> fighting turrets. Um, but I was working a desk job. I was in tech sales. You know, I, I went to grad school and stuff. So I was like moonlighting as a fighter while I was trying to do a kickoff a tech sales career. And um, but as I was doing that, I was getting myself my own fights. And then I'd be at practice and I would start coaching the other guys like Rob and grappling and stuff like that and um, trying to help them. And then next thing I was cornering those guys and then they were asking me to get them fights. And that's how it happened. It was never, oh, I'm going to go and be an agent. Like it was like, no, I just got my friends fights and then they just kept winning and it turned into something. And, you know, at, at the time where it would have made sense to pass them off to a bigger agent, we just had so much trust that we just, uh, let's keep this train, you know, keep the train going. Nice, man. Hey, I really appreciate you taking this kind of time to answer every question I got uh, before I get out of here, before we get out of here, the fans were very excited that you were coming on half the battle and they got a bunch of questions for you down to answer some fan questions. Sure. Awesome. So Nick wants to know, other than, you know, the fighters that we've mentioned, who's someone on your roster to watch that people might not know about? Well, I got like two young kids. And it's like this kid, Mitch Raposo, he's 4-0 at 125. He's actually, if you look at his record, he's 4-0 at 35 and 45 just because we've had some fallouts. And the 25 division was going away, so we were trying to establish him as a 35-er. But he was 6-0 and amateur with six decision wins. He was struggling to finish guys. He was only 18. And then um, now he's 21 years old. He's 4-0 pro. We were trying to get him on the contender this year. And um, it's just he beat four turds. It's just we've had last-minute fallout, so we've had to take whatever's available. Like even last fight, he fought a guy that was, I think, 1-3, but it was at 145. 
you know, but it was on two days notice. It was just like, all right, let's just get the win. Um, he's a beast, man. He, he trains uh, out of regiment training center under Brian uh, Raposo and Tommy uh, Texera. And the kids, I always say this, he's like the most talented kid coming out of his amateur career, like from a skill set wise that I, I've ever seen in New England. Um, the kids just, the sky's the limit with him. And now we just, you know, working on getting his next fight. Everything's been shut down in New England. So he's one to keep an eye on. And then, um, Brennan Murad, I always say him is he's a six and one pro. He was, he almost got on the contender series last summer. He's five and zero, oh, but then he went, he lost on a Friday night. And on Monday we got an offer to be on the contender. And I'm like, Oh, he just lost Friday night. And so then since then, um, he got another win. So he's six and one. So he's, a, he just likes to brawl. He's like a Chris Lieben at 145. He just wants to come forward and just smash your face. So he's always exciting. And then I have um, a young girl, uh, Alexandra Blue. She's one and oh, she fought for Bellator, but she's not signed with them. She's a 125er. And um, yeah, she's got like the, the right mindset and the, the work ethic to like really make it as a female in the sport. And um, I'm excited to see her, you know, we had a fight booked for her for her second fight, but then she tore her ACL when uh. she was out for a year. And then we had a fight booked for her and then the pandemic hit. So it's just been like, but I mean, her attitude over this whole time, over the one year. And then since then with the pandemic, you know, she's still in the gym, she's still training and she's still getting better. So it's, um, you know, it's encouraging to see her like keeping that same mindset of like, all right, the stream isn't over. Like we're going to keep doing this. So yeah, those are the, you know, the three young people that I have, uh, you know, I have a bunch of prospects, but those are the three that kind of stand out as like that, like media would ask me about, like I have some other guys that are great too, but those are the ones that, you know, the MMA junkies might be like, Hey, what's going on with this guy? Like what's next for him? Like, I really like him. You know, those are the ones that, you know, um, you know, they put on the, the Dana, Dana White contender series watch list every year and stuff like that. So obviously Alexander needs some more fights, but uh, yeah, she'll be one that you'll be hearing about in another year or two. Nice. So 420 MMA wants to know on a scale of one to 10, how good are your cooking skills? Dude, I can, I can like cook like a frozen pizza and I can make like a breakfast sandwich with eggs, but I'm not like uh, I'm not going to make it a dinner for my wife. I'm uh, I'm more likely to just go pick it up, get takeout. Not not the best cook, probably. So Quinn wants to know. He says, "Ask him when Rob Font is getting a fight booked. We need that man back." Is that Quinn Boyce? <laughs> no, Quinn. it's not. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Um, yeah, so we just got him cleared by the surgeon the other day. I, so uh, Rob went into the surgeon's office. Then I had a phone call with the surgeon. Um, yeah, he's cleared. So we're kind of doing like a pre-camp right now for the next few weeks to get Rob kind of over that hump of, you know, come back from ACL surgery. There's a lot of mental stuff that goes along with that. Just getting him like ready to go. And then the idea would be we get a fight end of November, but in a perfect world, beginning of December, get one fight in before the end of the year and um, be able to do an actual, you know, little pre-camp right now and then actually do an eight-week camp and then go out to fight week yeah because i felt like rob's last two fights for a surge and uh ricky were like by far the best performances of his career i feel like he's yeah. putting it together to a point the kid's a beast you know i think i think he's getting overshadowed right now because calvin's got all this momentum but he's the captain of our team you know he's the og the first one that was in the ufc he's the one that's setting this standard of how to train for all these younger guys like calvin and and the other guys that we got coming up through um you know he's the team captain and I think, you know, you, he walked through Sergio Pettis, who's no joke. You know, I think, you know, I think he gets overshadowed a little bit because of his brother. And, um, but he's obviously he beat Benavidez, you know, he's good. 
And then Ricky Simone, people could argue that, oh, that's a horrible matchup for Rob. Look at what, you know, Sun Tzu was able to out-wrestle him. And then look, he, you know, he out-wrestled Ricky Simone. So, um, you know, beat him handily with a, you know, torn ACL for two rounds. So um, I'm excited to see him come back and, and start building momentum. You know, we win this fight. That's three in a row. And, and you know, we're still sitting here at top 10. You know, and, and we have a lot of good fights there. You know, maybe, you know, a Sunsour rematch, Pedro rematch, um, you know, the Jimmy Rivera or Cody Stamen fights are out there. And um, there's a lot of good fights that, you know, I think will be really entertaining to the fans. That'll help boost Rob Stock and show everybody that, like, okay, like, I know he's had some injuries and healthy scratches. Like, you know, we only fought twice in the last two years. I think people start, you know, saying his name again. Eric also says Rob Font is the most slept on fighter in the UFC. I'm sure you probably agree with that. Yeah, man, dude, look at him. He's got, I think you could argue, if it wasn't for Calvin, people would only be talking about Rob Font's job. You know, he's just yeah. like at this jab clinic that he puts on people and he's so smooth. And, um, you know, people talk about Calvin's boxing all the time, but like they, I think they overshadowed Rob's a little bit. Is You know, Rob's got the cleanest jab that you'll see. And then, and he just keeps adding to his skill set, you know. He's been, since the Asunta fight, he's been wrestling twice a week with the USM University of Southern Maine coach, uh, John Dupree. And now he's a good wrestler, you know, like he's legitimately like getting in there with wrestlers and being able to, uh, you know, handle them and stuff like that. So it's, uh, yeah, I just think, you know, people are sleeping on him just because the inactivity, which has been out of our control. But I think once he gets back there, you know, that'll be a third win in a row. And then the next, you know, we're booking our fight going for the fourth win. Um, I think people will start talking about it more. So Goku MMA says, how common is it for coaches and cornermen to motivate their fighter by telling them that they're up two rounds when they're clearly down? He also says every commentator has claimed that narrative for corners who do this, but they also counter by saying that they want their coaches to be honest. What's your take? I think honesty is always the best policy. Like, you know, but I don't think like that means you don't go for the finish. You know, I think I said it between the fourth and the fifth round to Calvin against Vigay. I was like, listen, I go, we're, we're probably up, you know, three to one or, or whatever. Um, but, you know, we need to, you know, we're not, we're not trying to get a decision here. You know, we're trying to show the world that we're ready for a title shot, not win a decision. You know, so we go out there, we put a stamp on this and show everybody that we're a contender. Um, I, I just think you got to be honest. You know, I think I don't, I mean, every fighter is different and every coach is different. Those relationships are intimate. So it's hard to say, but, I think, you know, guys like Rob and Calvin, I think they need to know where they're at. You know, if I tell them like, you know, I can trust them enough to say, Hey, listen, you're up two to nothing, but we can't take your foot off the gas knowing that they won't. Whereas like some guys, I think if you tell them, Hey, we're up two to nothing, they might go into cruise control, you know, and then maybe get finished. So I think, um, there's no need to lie. I think they're going to be able to trust you on the next fight Cause they're going to go back and watch that. And then they're going to be questioning everything you say. Right. So you got to be careful with that is, um, you know, the trust between a coach and a fighter that's not something that happens overnight. It's earned, you know, every, every statement you make, every time you say something that goes into that little database in their brain of, can I trust this guy? And, and over time they have to realize that the answer is always yes. And if it's not, then you're not the guy that's going to be able to pull that motivation out them in, you know, third or fifth round to go get a win because they're going to be like, yeah, fuck you. You're speaking bullshit or you can tell them the truth. And so I think in my point of view, honesty is always going to be the best policy. I was about to say, honesty is the best policy in any walk of life, no matter what it is. So great question. Josh wants to know, ask Tyson who requested the three-round main event versus the beat. Was that a Zabit camp or UFC thing? And do you guys as a team regret obliging to those circumstances considering what went down? 
we didn't have a say. It was like, hey, you're the main event now. It's still three rounds, no changes. And we went back and we we're like, hey, we'll do five rounds, you know? And um, they were like, cool, that's not happening. So I think it was the Beats camp that decided it. And then they just threw it on us. And we went back and we're like, hey, no, we'll do five. And they're like, no, it's already decided. So we didn't have a say in it at all. We were willing to do five. Um, you know, it, it's, yeah, it was frustrating, but it is what it is. So real quick, I, I, just as a coach, uh, so we talked about how Ige, like, for whatever reason, takes the second round off. Maybe he doesn't even notice that he's doing it. But, like, Zabit's been criticized for his third rounds in fights. Now, let me ask you this. Zabit starts fighting in championship fights or just five-round main events. Do you think it's a case where he's going to get that second win in the fourth round, come out hard, or do you actually think that, no, he really is slowing down and he might get finished in the fourth rounds in fights? I think you're going to see him maybe pace himself a little bit better in the first and the second, which will lead to him not being such a front runner. I think he, he sets a pace to be able to last 15 minutes and he usually killing guys in the first and the second round. You know, you look at his fights, he takes you down and gets your back. You're, you're, you're treading water and you're, you're drowning. Um, I think if he knows he's in a five round fight, he won't carry that same pace. So I think he'll look more human against other guys, you know, right. Cause I think up until Calvin fought him, he, you know, Kyle kind of pokes Kyle Bachniak pokes some holes in him in his game a little bit, but um, up until Calvin fought him, people thought he wasn't human. Like, oh, you can't do anything to him. And then Calvin showed that you can defend his takedowns. You can, um, you know, push him back on his heels and beat him up a little bit, and um, you know, get him. You know, it's just we did it too late. But yeah, I think if he's five rounds, he's gonna have to pace himself a little bit better, which I think means. That some of these other guys, like if he fights against a Yair and can't take him down right away, maybe Yair is going to, you know, outvolume him in the first round, and maybe you see Zabit have to fight from behind. It'll be interesting. That's why you know that's why you do five rounds. It'll be interesting to see how he does. Yeah, no doubt about it. I'm curious myself. So E wants to know how many short notice fights are being offered during the COVID era. There's a lot going out, but um, you know, I got one. You know, we have a small roster, so I'm not I'm not sick of it in the thick of it like some of these other agents that have 150 guys on roster and they're getting calls every day. Like we keep our circle tight. I think we got like 30 fighters, eight in the UFC, and then you know some prospects below that. And you know I'm not trying to be uh, you know a puppy mill. I'm trying to you know really be intimate with all the guys that I have, and um, you know I'm learning as I go. But you know you're starting to see it more. You're starting to see a lot of these um, you know every week because of the COVID and you know because of you know, travel restrictions, you're seeing new guys get called in. So it's definitely creating some opportunities for some of these young prospects. Nice. So last two questions. So Matt says, uh, does Calvin ever plan to move up to 155 in the future? There's no need right now. I mean, he's open to like a, a if it was like a money fight or anything like that, but that's like stuff you talk about after you get the belt, you know, yeah. right now our goal is like straight on the belt. It's, we don't have a hard time making weight. You know, I think he's a bigger 45er, but it's not like we're struggling to make the weight and he's growing out of the weight class. It's, uh, you know, there's no need to think about those things right now. Um, you know, right now the focus is just taking out the next guy, that Bill Belichick mindset onto the next one. And, um, then if that one, hopefully it's max and that, or just the title shot. Awesome. Well, Tyson, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me right here, right now on half the battle. It's been an absolute pleasure. The fans can follow you at Tyson Chartier. Tyson, uh, any message for the fans before we get out of here? Hi, man. Just uh, this Saturday. When's this going to be posted? Before Saturday? Yeah, in the morning, probably. Yeah, so watch Mike Rodriguez get in there again. Second time in three weeks against Ed Herman. I think he's the second fight on the main card. And then uh, next Tuesday night, 
the uh, New England MMA OG, Dennis Paiva, 32 years old. He's 13-7, and seven, finally getting a shot on a contender series. He started out his career 3-5, and five, just taking stupid fights. And then he finally, you know, joined a gym. And um, me and him have been working together. Now we're 10-2. Nice. He's, uh, he's, he's one of Calvin and Rob's training partners. He's a beast. Um, nickname is Sweetbread. So he'll be fighting next uh, next Tuesday on the contender series. So, you know, really, he's, he's one of those stories that's hard to not cheer for. He's a great kid, super polite, family man. Um, but if there's anyone that deserves a shot at getting a contract in the UFC, it's Dennis Paiva. So, Definitely cheer for him. I think you'll like his story when you hear it on the broadcast. And uh, yeah, man, just uh, thank you for having me on. Oh, man, it's my pleasure. Thank you again for being so gracious with your time. For the fans, make sure you follow me at Best Fight Picks. Go to bestfightpicks.com. Subscribe to Half the Battle on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Stitcher, Spotify, all the places where we are available. We will be back to break down the fights tomorrow. And until the next time, let's cash these bets.